Numbers chapter number 13 this morning. And I'd like to begin reading in verse number 25. Now, you're probably familiar with this passage of Scripture. Even as a child, you were probably taught uh, about the twelve spies that were sent in to spy out the land of Canaan. But I want us to notice a phrase that is given by one of them. And uh, I want us to sort of preach out of that thought. We're going to look at the whole passage. We're going to walk through it expositionally. But uh, I want us to notice a phrase, because when, when God showed it to me, I, I guess I've read it probably a hundred times, but when God showed it to me, man, God just did something in my heart and soul, and I hope that it will do the same for you. Let's begin reading in verse 25. The Bible says, "...and they returned from searching of the land after forty days. And they went and came to Moses and to Aaron and to all the congregation of the children of Israel under the wilderness of Paran to Kadesh." and brought back word unto them, and unto all the congregation, and showed them the fruit of the land. And they told him and said, We came unto the land whither thou sentest us, and surely it floweth with milk and honey, and this is the fruit of it. Nevertheless, the people be strong that dwell in the land, and the cities are walled and very great. Moreover, we saw the children of Anak there. The Amalekites dwell in the land of the south, and the Hittites, and the Jebusites, and the Amorites dwell in the mountains, and the Canaanites dwell by the sea and by the coast of Jordan. And Caleb stilled the people before Moses and said, Let us go up at once and possess it, for we are well able to overcome it. But the men that went up with him said, We be not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger than we. They brought up an evil report of the land which which they had searched unto the children of Israel, saying, The land through which we have gone to search it is a land that eateth up the inhabitants thereof. All the people that we saw in it are men of a great stature. And there we saw the giants, the sons of Anak, which come of the giants. And we were in our own sight as grasshoppers, and so we were in their sight. Let's pray together. Lord, we love you and thank you for this day and time. Lord, in all seriousness, I thank you for protecting those of us that are not sick. But Lord, our hearts go out to those that uh, are sick this morning. And our prayers certainly, Father, we want to be praying for them and asking you to protect them, to help them to get better soon. Uh, Lord, to keep them safe and encourage them, bless them where they are at. Lord, we know that uh, the vast majority of them would rather be here and feeling good than sitting at home and sick. Just pray that you'd bless them and keep them and strengthen them. I pray this morning, Father, for the preaching. Lord, we need preaching. I need preaching. I pray, Father, that the Holy Ghost would minister the truth of Your Word to our hearts, our minds, and in our lives. Help us to be obedient to it, Lord. Uh, Help us to receive it not as the Word of men, but as is in truth the Word of God, that You might uh, bring about an effectual and eternal change in our lives. Lord, we love You. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. I want you to notice what Caleb says in verse number 30. Caleb stilled the people before Moses and said, Let us go up at once and possess it. Now, I like this. This is what stirred me. He said, For we are well able to overcome it. This, and we'll get into it. I don't even know how the preaching's going to go today as far as how close it'll stick to any sort of structure. But let me just say this, that uh, by the power of God, we are well able to do what God wants us to do. Man, for far too long you hear Christians, and and I understand we live in a hard world, and I understand that we're beset around with many troubles and difficulties. That's not lost on me. I've got my share, and you've got yours, and we might be sharing a little of each other's too. But for too long, we as Christians have been down in the mouth about living for the Lord. For too long, man, we we you ask us, how you doing? Well, I'm making it. Uh, If you'd ask Caleb, how you doing? He'd say, we are well able to overcome it. 
I want to preach to you on that thought this morning. We are well able. Now, what are we well able to do? Well, I believe the context of Scripture gives us an idea. There are a lot of things we are not well able to do. Somebody say amen to that. Uh, if you were to say, uh, but Toby, you ought to try out for the NBA. I'd say, well, now listen, I appreciate the vote of confidence, but I'm not well able to do that job. Uh, if you were to say, but Toby, have you ever considered being a professional model? I'd say there are a lot of things in my wheelhouse, but there are some things I am not well able to do. But now when it comes to the things that God has instructed us to do, we're not just making it, friend, or if we are, it's not because of the Lord, it's because of us. We're not just barely equipped to do what God wants us to do. We are well equipped to do what God wants us to do. But it's going to require a little something called faith. And we see faith as the chief feature of this passage. I want you to go back and look at the first three verses of this passage with me, this chapter. And I want you to notice how this whole thing begins. Now, I'm sure you're familiar with the context. They have made what is a very quick and straightforward journey from the Red Sea here to the wilderness of Sin and Kadesh Barnea. They are at the doorstep of the realization of what God has for them As a people, Uh, they are going to, you and I both know, after this incident, they're going to spend 40 years wandering. But the wandering has not begun to take place yet. The book of Deuteronomy says it's 11 days journey uh, from the Red Sea to where they stood at this point. And they've made a beeline from where they were to where God wants them to be. They're standing on the cusp of the land that God has prepared for them. Look at these first three verses in this chapter. The Bible says, And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Send thou men, that they may search the land of Canaan, which I give unto the children of Israel. Of every tribe of their fathers shall ye send a man, every one a ruler among them. And Moses, by the commandment of the Lord, sent them from the wilderness of Paran. All those men were heads of the children of Israel. Let me pause and say this to you. Uh, To understand how it applies to us today, we have to recognize what this land meant to them in that day and what God was seeking to illustrate in the history of the nation of Israel by this. You'll often hear gospel songs, I sing them and you sing them, uh, that talk about the land of Canaan and describe the land of Canaan as being like unto heaven. Well, now listen, I'm not getting ready to tear out to Canaan's land. I'm on my way out of my, uh, out of my hymn book. I'm not getting ready to get upset at where the soul never dies and talks about Canaan land. But uh, I believe if we rightly divide the word of truth, we have to recognize that the land of Canaan was not in any way representative of heaven. You say, well, why do you believe that, preacher? Well, there's several reasons. One of the reasons is because the children of Israel spent 40 years without getting there. Amen. Uh, They were wandering. You all right? Maybe some of y'all do have the flu today. Come on now. I know everybody's sick, but we can still worship. Hey, listen. They spent 40 years wandering around because of their unbelief. When it's time for you and I to go to heaven, uh, it ain't got a lick of anything to do with whether we're striving, whether we're pushing, whether we're endeavoring. We're going to go because of the grace of God if we've accepted Christ as our Lord and Savior. Uh, the, the, the land of heaven is not something we earn, it's not something we strive for, it's not something we work for. We're going to get there by grace or we're not going to get there at all. Then there's another uh, reason, and that is they were, the children of Israel, later on they were expelled from the land of Canaan. 
God uh, allowed them to be taken into captivity by Nebuchadnezzar. Well, the northern ten tribes were taken by Sennacherib and the Assyrians, and then the southern two tribes were taken by Nebuchadnezzar into the land of Babylon. I got news for you. Listen, when I get into the presence of God, I don't plan on leaving there. Amen? Uh, now, I understand uh, that uh, we're not going to spend forever in heaven. I understand that we're going to spend forever, uh, all of eternity, upon uh, a new earth and uh, there will be a new Jerusalem. But what I'm saying is this, once I get into God's presence, I ain't going to leave God's presence. Uh, to be absent from the body, Paul said, is to be present with the Lord. When I get in His presence, I'm going to stay there. <laughs> I ain't going to be kicked out of His presence because there again, I didn't make it by my good works, I made it by His grace. But then I think that Canaan is probably not a fit representation of heaven because there were enemies there. There were giants there. There were things that had to be conquered there. And my Bible tells me that the Lord Jesus has already made an open show of principalities and powers. He's already spoiled them. He's already defeated them. Uh, the Lord has already defeated every enemy that I need defeated. Amen? And when I get to heaven, if I get there and have to run a bunch of giants out of my mansion, I'm going to be upset. Amen? I say a lot of that tongue-in-cheek, but... Uh, it is a reality that Canaan was a land that had to be taken. It was not something that uh, was going to passively be possessed. It had to be taken. Heaven is not something, the, the, uh, the presence of God is not something that has to be actively taken. It's something granted unto us by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. So what then is Canaan a representation of? And if you've been around my preaching long, you've heard me say this before. Canaan is a picture of the life that God wants for His people to live. It's a picture of the will of God. It's a picture of the plan of God. It's a picture of the blessing and favor of God. Hey, listen, when God saved you, He had something more in mind than just getting you out of hell and headed to heaven. He intended to change your life. When you talk to people and they say, well, I'm saved. Well, saved from what? There's a lot of folks living the exact same way they did afterwards. I have trouble believing they've ever been saved. Saved from what? And people say, well, saved from hell. Well, that's true. But we've been born again. We have been saved from eternal damnation. But God meant to save us from more than hell when He saved us. If any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. God intends for you to live this life, this temporal life, to the fullest, living for the glory of God, living in the power of God, living in the will of God. And the fact of the matter is, there's a lot of Christians that are living second-class lives. They're just barely muddling through and making through. And they're not living in the victory that God intends for us to live in. Now, even in places of victory, even in Canaan, there were battles. I'm not implying there won't be battles. Uh, but we can be... Uh, the Bible says we're more than conquerors through Him that loved us. And so Canaan is representative of the life that God wants us to live in obedience unto Him and the victory that we experience through that. I'd like for you to notice three things real quick as a little introduction. Number one, I want you to notice the covenant that God made. God promised them the land. God intended for them to inhabit Canaan. You know God intends for you to live in the perpetual fellowship that we can have with Him. God does not intend for you to constantly live a defeated, discouraged life. We all have times of discouragement. But God does not intend for us to just plant a juniper tree and set up shop and say, I'm just going to stay here. We all sometimes visit those places of discouragement. But God's intention for you and I, His plan for you and I, is for us to be growing and going for Him and developing as a Christian and living in victory. I see the covenant. I want you to notice the condition, though. Uh, the Bible says that, that God had given them the land, but 
there were enemies in the land that had to be driven out. I'll tell you this, living the life that God intends for us is not something we can do passively. We're going to have to do it actively. There's a lot of folks, the only way they do anything in life is passively. There's people that make a living out of doing as little as possible. There are. And there's a lot of Christians that they do the the bare minimum. When they're at church, it's because they feel guilty if they're not there. When they read their Bible, it's because they feel like a hypocrite when they don't. When they pray, it's because they need something, but they desire no fellowship with the Lord. If there's any standards in their life, it's only because they would feel like a reprobate if they didn't have them there. They're just barely getting by and doing as little as humanly possible. Hey, if the salt has lost its savor, wherewith is it fit to be salted? It's fit for nothing, Christ said, but to be trodden underfoot. Uh, there was a condition. It's going to take some active pursuit to live the life that God wants you to live. I'm not talking about earning your way to heaven. I'm not talking about earning your salvation. But I am talking about committing yourself to live and walk by faith and to not be satisfied with the status quo. Hey, listen, there's been a lot of good things God's done in my life. I bet there's been a lot of good things He's done in your life. When they first get to the land, you know what they do? This isn't even my message, but they get to the land and they eat of the old corn for the first year. And there's a lot of Christians still feasting off that old corn. Still talking about what they used to do for God, what they once did for the Lord, what God once did in their life. Talking about how close they used to be to the Lord. You're still living off the old corn of the land. But sooner or later, you know what happened? They had to plant crops and they had to raise new fruits. There's times that we need that old corn. But there comes a time we got to move beyond it too. I ain't got no problem listening. Anybody wants to give a testimony about the day they was born again, I'll shout along with them. But if the last time you and God had anything to do with each other was when you got born again, something's wrong. If the last time that you got committed to God was when you got born again, then something's wrong. Nothing wrong with a little old corn, but eventually you got to start living on the new fruit of the land. There was a condition. They had to pursue it. They had to drive out the inhabitants. They had to fight battles. It wasn't something that was just going to happen by accident. It had to happen by providence and by determination. Then notice this. Moses, uh, the Bible says it very specifically. Verse 3, Moses, by commandment of the Lord, sent them from the wilderness of Paran. They were commanded to take the land. Commanded. In other words, a, a passive approach to Canaan was not something that was even within the permissible, allowable, conscionable will of God. For them to be passive was for them to be disobedient. You understand that if we've just shifted into neutral and we're letting this thing coast, we're not just slowly moving forward, we're moving backwards. You understand this to be a basic truth of life, that everything's either living or dying. It's either growing or diminishing. And in your spiritual walk, which is the case? There's no standing still. You're either pressing forward or you're moving backwards. They were commanded. To not take the land was an act of sin and disobedience for which God chastened them. Part of the reason we may be so miserable in life is because we're living in disobedience. Not because we're out drinking, not because we're stepping out on our spouse, not because we're into drugs, but because we've simply uh, resigned ourselves to doing the same old thing over and over again and never trying to grow in the Lord. If you're not growing in the Lord, something's wrong. Growth does not always mean an external manifestation. It doesn't always necessarily mean making great strides in changing this or that in your life. 
But are you more committed to God today than you were a year ago? If you're not, then something's wrong. And I'll say this, if you're not, you're not the only one. There's no temptation taken of us, but such as is common to man. But it doesn't change the fact that it's still disobedience. Man, listen, I know this ain't the kind of thing that lathers everybody up. There probably ain't going to be nobody run up the wall and do a backflip. But we need this, friend. We've gotten, we've gotten too complacent. We've gotten satisfied on that old corn and we're just, we're just skimming along. And we've quit pushing in our walk with God. And to do so is disobedience. So I want you to notice a few thoughts this morning and then we'll close. We'll close real early if you amen me a lot. I'll get somebody to do a backflip yet. I want you to notice a few thoughts with me this morning. Number one, I want you to look back at verse number 30. The Bible says this. Look at verses 30 and 31 juxtaposed beside each other. So they return back to the camp. They're carrying a cluster of grapes. They're carrying uh, pomegranates. They're carrying figs. Uh, They come back and they bring all this back to the camp. And they give a report over what has transpired. And we see two responses to it. I want you to think with me about the proposition of faith. What faith is, what faith means. We talk about faith a lot. What is faith, really? Look at verse number 30. The Bible says, And Caleb stilled the people before Moses and said, Let us go up at once and possess it, for we are well able to overcome it. But the men that went up with him said, We be not able to go up against the people. Let me say this, that faith is the very basic, very simple reality that when faced with the truth of God's Word, we have two options. You've been faced with some truth this morning. Listen, you've been faced with the reality that you're either growing in the Lord or you're diminishing in the Lord. You're either getting closer to God or you're drifting from God. And you have a choice, and I have a choice, as to how we will respond to that. What are the two choices? One is to receive and believe God's Word. When faced with all of the evidence, we'll say a word about that in a moment, but when faced with everything, Caleb looks at it all, he assesses it, and he says, you know what I think, boys? I think we are well able. And these other men, looking at the same fruit, the same evidence, the same thing, said, we be not able. Here's the question I have for you this morning. Uh, Probably everybody in this room uh, would say, if they were being honest, they want to be closer to God than they are right now. Uh, Listen, I, I, I will grant you the goodwill to believe that that's true. Probably everybody in this room, if I said you want to be closer to God, you want to serve God more, you want to know God better, you want to live for God in a more faithful, consistent way, probably everybody in the room would say, yeah, preacher, that's what I want. The question is, when faced with the truth of God's Word, how are you going to respond? Are you going to respond by saying, yeah, I believe by God's grace, by God's strength, by God's leadership, that I can get closer to God, that I can know God in a more personal way, or are you going to say like the other men... Not able. Not able. I'll tell you right now, there's a lot of people that even right now, your flesh is telling you, you've heard this before, you've said this before, you've made these commitments before, but look at where you are right now. And doing everything it can to try to shout down what you know to be the truth of God's Word this morning. You and I both know that God doesn't ask anybody to do anything that He won't equip them to do. The Bible says He's given us all things that pertain unto life and godliness. That means God has given us everything we need to live for Him. 
So the question is, are you going to sit back and say, well, I've said this before and turn off the uh, truth of it? Or are you willing to be bold enough, to be honest enough? Are you willing to have enough confidence in God's Word to say no? If God says I can get closer to Him, if God says I can know Him in a greater way, if God says that I can see my prayers answered and that I can see myself be a a valid and, and vigorous witness for Him, I'm willing to trust God and I'm willing to say we're not just barely able, we're well able. There's two responses, but before we even get into those, I want you to stop and think with me about the consideration of faith. One of the things that I that annoys me about the world's definition of faith. Faith has become a buzzword. Every and you've heard me say this before, but every politician that slimes its way up to Washington well, is always a person of faith. Isn't that astounding? Always a person of faith. Got a wife and six girlfriends and four mistresses, but they're a person of faith. Hey, listen, can, can laugh and stand and clap at the murder of unborn children, but they're a person of faith. They're all people of faith, every one of them. Because they have abused and perverted and twisted what the word faith is. Faith has basically two scriptural definitions. One, faith is a body of revealed truth. For instance, Jude said, I wanted to write unto you that you should contend for the faith once delivered to the saints. It's a body of revealed truth. But then faith is also, in a more experiential sense, in a more fundamental sense, faith is the effectual dependence upon God's Word, truth, and promise. So you have faith in the sense of this body of truth, but then faith is also the proper response of a person to that truth, to believe that truth, to accept that truth, to obey that truth. Instead, the world has ripped out the moorings of what faith is and made faith to be representative of, of uh, any, any number of, of ambiguous spiritual ideals. That's not what it is in the Word of God. Faith is seeing, hearing, observing, accepting God's Word and responding in obedience and, and, and in a reasonable way to what God has said. Notice, whenever they come back to Canaan, they didn't come in and say... All right, God said, let's go, so let's go. They didn't come back and say, all right, we've been to the land, but we ain't going to tell you what the land looks like. We ain't going to show you what came from the land. We're just going to tell you that you ought to go to the land, so go to the land. Instead, they come back and give three things upon which they are to base their faith, their consideration. And, you know, let me just say this. The faith that God calls us to is not a blind faith. The, the, The atheist will say that any faith is a blind faith except the faith that they have in evolution. That's not a blind faith according to them. Right? You see the problem with that? You understand that it takes far more faith for them to believe what they believe than it does for us to believe what we believe? You understand we have far more proof of the reality and existence of God and His personal interest and His uh, personal involvement in creation than they have in whatever mystical theories that uh, Charles Darwin dreamed up on the Galapagos Island. You understand that? But they try to berate you and say, well, you just have that blind faith. Biblical faith is not blind faith. Notice three things that they came back and gave them. Number one, they came back and they gave them a taste. They said, here's the fruit. Here's the grapes. Here's the pomegranates. Here's the figs. The, the, the logical implication of that is this. Here's something from the land, but there's more in the land if you want to go to the land. You know that, and there's a lot of theological truth found in here, the Spirit of God is the earnest of our redemption. In many ways, He's like that fruit. 
from another land. But you know also that when you got born again, the divine supernatural power of God and the person of the Spirit of God took up residence in your life. God gave you a taste of the life that He wants you to live. We were talking in Sunday school, somebody was giving a praise about something that God had done in their family's life, and, and they made the same. They said, you know, I know it's a small thing, and, and, and we talked about nothing that God does is a small thing. Nothing. Nothing that God does is a small thing. Can I say this? Least of all, and this wasn't what that person was talking about, but least of all, the day you got born again. I like what the song says, the greatest of all miracles was when Jesus saved me. God performed what is undoubtedly the greatest miracle of your life the day that He saved you. What was He doing? He was giving you a taste of the land that He wants you to live in. He was showing you that He had the ability to conquer uh, your fears. And He was showing you that He had the ability to pardon your sins. And He was showing you that He had the ability to overrule and override the natural inclinations of your spirit. He was showing you that He had the power and authority to take government of your life and to lead you and to guide you. He was giving you a taste of the land that He wants you to live in. And when God... Listen, every single born-again believer, if you want to know what their faith is based upon, there's a lot of things, and, and mostly it's the truth of the Word of God, but everybody that's truly born again don't have to wonder whether God is real. You've tasted and seen that the Lord is good. Gave them a taste. I, listen, I, you'll never convince me. <laughs> you'll never convince me God's not real. It doesn't matter how many books they write. It doesn't matter what science unfolds. You'll never convince me God's not real because I've experienced Him. I've tasted. And my faith is based on that taste. Number two, uh, they gave him a testimony. They said, we've seen the land and it flows with milk and honey. In other words, they were saying, take it from someone that's been there that this is a good land to be in. I know that I can live for the Lord, not just because the Lord showed Himself mighty and powerful in my life when He saved me, but I also know I can live for the Lord. I can experience what God desires for me to experience because I've, I've heard and seen the testimonies of those that have been in the land. We get so focused, man, on those that, are, that, that have fallen and failed. I understand that natural thirst and hunger for gossip feeds that thing. We ought, listen, somebody does something right, we don't care. They did something wrong, we want to hear about that, right? And it's so easy to get so fixated on those that are doing the wrong thing. And I understand, hey, listen, we, we, me and a bunch of preachers met together trying to get a little fellowship thing together. And one of, the, one of the desires behind that was to edify and encourage one another to show each other that it ain't all people compromising. There are some folks that are sticking by the stuff. There are some folks that love the Lord. There are some folks that don't question and doubt His Word. There are some folks that aren't trying to go to the methods and mechanisms of the world to draw people in. So easy to get fixated on those that are going wrong and doing wrong that you forget, man, there are some people been living in the land. There are some folks been doing right. And it's so easy to get so fixated on it, it discourages us. It gets us to a place where we say, there's no way I can go on. And you know what would encourage you more than anything is to be reminded there are some folks that are going on. And you can live for the Lord. They gave them a testimony. Number three, they gave them the truth. They come back, and they and this is important. They came back and they said, it is a land that flows with milk and honey. Here's the fruit of it. You can taste it. I said, but guess what? There are battles to be fought there. There are giants. There are enemies. There are foes there. 
Faith does not put on rose-tinted glasses and pretend to live in a different reality. Faith, biblical faith, recognizes the challenges that lay ahead of it. They simply assess that God is big enough to handle them. I'm not going to tell you that there are not going to be setbacks in you trying to live for the Lord. There will be. As sure as you're made up of flesh and bone, there will be setbacks. There will be points of discouragement. There will be folks forsake you. There will be times that you feel down and you feel discouraged. You feel like you can't go on. You will make mistakes. Others will make mistakes. There are a lot of enemies in the land to fight. No question. But that does not nullify what is the basic function of faith. Faith does not dismiss or ignore those realities. Faith instead looks at them and then stacks them beside the God that we serve and says, I choose to believe that God is bigger than those things. I choose to believe that God is able, and He's not just barely able, He's well able to overcome those things. There's people in this room praying for big things. I know you are because you tell me about them. You're praying for children and grandchildren and loved ones, and you're begging God to intervene and to make a difference in their life. And if you're not careful, you'll get so focused on those whose kids never came back and those whose grandchildren went the way of the world, those whose marriages fell apart, those whose churches went the wrong way. You'll get so focused on that that you'll forget that we serve a big God that is well able. Well able. Faith doesn't live in a dream world, but it does live in a divine world. And it does recognize that God is big enough to keep His promises. God is big enough to keep His promises. There's never been a promise that God made that He did not keep. And He won't start with you. God will keep His promises. We see the consideration of faith. Sadly, there were two different ways they could have responded. Caleb and Joshua respond one way, and the other ten spies respond the other way. And I want us to, for, for the sake of the, the cohesiveness of the message, I want us to consider the way that those that chose to disbelieve God responded. Think with me for a moment about the abdication of faith. So, every time you're confronted with truth, you have a choice. You can either receive and believe it, or you can dismiss and doubt it. One of the two. You can either accept what God says to be true and say, I know it's true because of the source, because it comes from the Lord, and I'm going to choose to live my life life in light of that reality. Or you can say, I'm going to choose to yield and give in to what are my fears or my anxieties or my disbeliefs or my unbelief. You have a choice that you're going to make. There were ten of them that made the wrong decision. Look at verse 31. The Bible says, But the men that went up with him said, We be not able to go up against the people for they are stronger than we. Once you notice something very interesting they did there. They wrapped a lie in the truth. They said, they be stronger than we. That's true. That's a million percent true. That's as true as it was on the day that David stepped out into the valley of Elah to stand against Goliath. Everything that Goliath said, for the most part, was true that day. He said, what are you, a dead dog? (laughs) You're going to be a dead dog. Uh, you know, he said, what am I, a dog that you send out him against me? That you uh, send out a, a child with sticks and staves? Uh, what do you think, I'm nobody? I can squash this kid. And he was right. He was true. The problem is Goliath was looking in the wrong place. He was looking at that scrawny kid standing in front of him. He wasn't looking at the God that was standing behind that kid. They, what they say is true. They say they're stronger than we. And I, I want to say this correctly. Faith is not merely a matter of perspective, but there is a perspective that is of faith, and there is a perspective that is of unbelief. 
You see, they allowed what they saw as being the daunting reality to define what was the next, by extension, the next statement. They said, they're stronger than we. And in light of that, we be not able to go up against the people. Now, we'll see here in a moment that Caleb took the opposite tack. Caleb was not dismissive of how strong they were, but he chose to look at the strength of his God instead of the strength of the giants. And that's what informed him. You know, oftentimes, unbelief will, will wrap itself in something that is a truth. Oftentimes, the devil won't come to you often and try to put things in your head that are not somewhat of a reality. He'll come and he'll say, well, listen, you've made mistakes before. What makes you think you won't make them again? He'll come and say, hey, listen, other people have fallen away. Other people have quit on God. What makes you think you're better than them? Well, the fact is, you probably have made mistakes before. You probably have made a hundred promises to God that you've broken. There are other folks that have given up. But none of that takes into account the reality of God's power and ability and His promise. You see, the devil always takes that lie and he wraps it up in a truth to try to feed it to you. And because of that, I want you to notice three things that they did. Look at verse number 32. They brought up an evil report of the land which they had searched under the children of Israel. Now this is interesting because it goes completely contrary to what they had said a few moments ago. They come in carrying a cluster of grapes so big that it had to be carried on a stave between two men. They, they, got, they got their knapsacks full of, uh, of pomegranates and figs. And they said, this is a land that flows with milk and honey. And then they turn right around and they bring up an evil report of the land. They're going to talk about the enemies here in a moment. But I want you to notice that they made their mind up that the land was not worth it. The Bible says, they said, the land through which we have gone to search it is a land that eateth up the inhabitants thereof. Disbelief and unbelief will make you disregard God's place. God said, I want you in Canaan. It's a good land to be in. And it was true that it was a good land to be in. But because they chose to yield to their fears, their anxieties, and their unbelief instead of God's Word and God's promise, they disregarded that place and they said this, we know what it is, but we just don't think it's worth it. We just don't think it's worth it. There's a lot of folks that they know how they ought to be living, but they don't ever pursue trying to live right, trying to do right, trying to serve the Lord, trying to live for God, because they have convinced themselves that it's just simply not worth it. It's not worth the battles. It's not worth the sacrifice. It's not worth the broken friendships. It's not worth the, the uh, forfeited opportunities. It, it, it's not worth the, the pleasures that they'll have to yield to or give up and, and forfeit. And they just say it's simply not worth it. Can I say to you this morning, it's worth it serving God. Man, what you'll get in the land, what you'll get in the land is so much better than what you can get anywhere else. What you can get in the will of God is so much better than what you can get anywhere else. If you ain't never lived in, in, in deliberate obedience to God, you don't even know what you're missing out on. Uh, the Bible says about the things that God hath prepared for them that love the Lord that I have not seen nor ear heard, neither hath it entered into the hearts of man what God hath prepared for them that love Him. Listen, you, you have no, you're, you're assessing the property value of a place that you ain't been to. And you're saying it ain't worth it. And to do so is to deify yourself, to dismiss what God has said, and to proclaim yourself the God of the universe. It's amazing the thing, you know, you know one of the hardest things in the world to do is to prove a negative. 
You, 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 can't, you can't, or to disprove a negative. You can't disprove a negative. If someone says, so-and-so was at such-and-such a place and did such-and-such, and you're trying to disprove it, how can you possibly go about that? You're trying to disprove a negative. You're trying to say the land is not good, but you ain't been to the land. You're trying to say it's not worth it. But you have a choice. You can either rely on your reasoning, your logic, your sense, or you can rely on the Lord's. That's what the reality of the choice is. You've not seen the land, so you don't know. They said, this land, it eateth up the inhabitants of it. They disregarded God's place. If the devil can get you uninterested in what God has for you, he has you. If he can get you uninterested in what God has for you, he has you. Man, I see this in the lives of young people so much. And a lot of it probably falls on us as adults. We've not shown and led by example. But it's so hard to get young people to realize that what God has for them is so far better than what the world can provide for them. Man, they look at that new car, they look at the clothes, they look at the opportunities, they look at the popularity or the power or the position, and they say, man, that looks good. Man, that looks good. And it's a struggle sometimes to get them to look with enough faith at God's promises to imagine and trust that God has something better for them than what the world can provide. And those of us that have been in the land, we need to be willing to stand up and say, listen, what God has for you is better. It's better. I see that they disregarded God's place. I see in verse 32, at the end of it, they disregarded God's power. They said this, the people that we saw in it are men of a great stature. That was true. It's also true that they were, they, they were big, but they were not bigger than the God that they served. You are going to face real challenges trying to live for the Lord, but they're not anything that God can't overcome. If you see this as a proposition of you in your own strength living for the Lord, you are going to fail. But if you recognize it as merely the, the, the manifestation, the expression of your obedience to God, we too often need a plan for everything. We don't have to have... Well, I better say this right. We don't have to have a plan for everything if we've got a God that has a plan for everything. I'm not against planning. I'm not against organization. I'm not against having a strategy. But I'm saying this, that too often we don't, we don't ever want to set out on the journey because we haven't been informed of every step along the way. A lot of times we should trust God's, God's plan. God has a place. He, he has a power. Look at verse 33. I thought this was interesting. The Bible says, There we saw the giants, the sons of Anak, which come of the giants. Now, I, maybe I'm wrong, but I would imagine they probably didn't do a lot of sightseeing when they were there in the land. They probably didn't go on a lot of tours. They probably didn't go and eat in a coffee shop or, or a bistro and talk to the giants of the land. They had no way to know what they're about to say. They said, we were in our own sight as grasshoppers, and so we were in their sight. Now, the first thing they said is true. They were in their own sight as grasshoppers. We have no reason to doubt that. But how could they possibly know the second thing that they said? Did they talk to the giants? Did they come up and tell them, Hey, listen, we're, we're just thinking about invading the land and we wanted your opinion on us. If we're a good fit for this, what kind of strategies? Do you have any reserve troops? Do you have any, you know, war machines? What, what's your armory look like? We just want to know what the prospects are of us invading the land. They didn't know. They hadn't talked to nobody. Notice three things they did. One, they assumed the giant's perspective. 
They said they must think that we are as grasshoppers in their sight. Uh, because they were so determined to, to be cowed out of invading the land, they made a bigger foe than what there was. I don't doubt the giants were big, but you know, when they get to Jericho, it's very interesting, when they get to Jericho and they talk to Rahab, you know what Rahab says? Rahab says, the hearts of our people melted when we heard that you were coming. You want to know what, what is the real truth of the matter? We look at our problems and we say, there's no way. We're like grasshoppers in their sight. But it's not us that our problems are looking at. Not if we're following in obedience to the Lord and walking in faith. It's the God that we serve that our problems are looking at. They assumed the giant's perspective. And they wrongly assumed it. And then notice the second thing they did. They adopted it. They said, they think we're grasshoppers. So now we think we're grasshoppers. The problem is they didn't think they were grasshoppers. The only person in this whole equation that thought they were as grasshoppers was them. It's amazing what we can psych ourselves out about, isn't it? Uh, mental, psychological warfare is 90% of it. 90% of it. Uh, the, the devil very often, he knows what his resources are, he knows what our resources are. And so the very best thing he can do often is try to bow himself up and try to strut around and try to make us think and feel as though the battle is already lost. Because if he can intimidate us from ever setting foot in the land, he's got us beat. When they actually went into the land... The peoples fell away from them. (laughs) They threw down walls. They conquered cities. They destroyed kingdoms. Just grasshoppers. Funny thing about it, man, you get a bunch of grasshoppers together, they can do a lot of damage. They assumed and then they adopted. But you know what they did? They abandoned God's perspective. God never mentioned grasshoppers. God just said, if you'll let me lead you, I'll take you into that land and I'll drive out your enemies before you. You're not big enough, but I'm big enough. And if you'll allow me to go before you, I will do for you what you cannot do yourself. Unbelief at its very core is the dismissing of God's revealed truth. It's looking at what God has said and saying, I choose to believe my fears, my anxieties, my logic, whatever it might be. I choose to believe that instead of believing what God has spoken to be true. I see in this passage the abdication of faith. But then I see a declaration of faith, what Caleb says. Look back in verse number 30. Caleb stilled the people before Moses and said three things. First, I want you to notice that he responds with instant obedience. He says, let us go up at once. At once. The response of faith is the response of instant obedience. Jonah is an example of delayed obedience. He eventually followed God after he had to take a cruise in a whale's belly. But faith says, if God has spoken it, then let's go. Let's go. I I can tell you right now, it's not going to be faith that's going to try to get you to procrastinate committing to the Lord today. It's going to be disbelief and unbelief. It's going to be doubt that's going to cause that. Faith would say, if God expects more of me, then I'm going to respond. Disbelief would say, well, let's step back and look at our options first. He responds with instant obedience. And I want you to notice the second thing. He he responds with immovable adherence. He says, let's possess it. Faith says, once we go this way, we're not coming back. You know, that's a lot of our problem. We always have an exit strategy. 
when it comes to following God. We step out in faith always thinking about the prospect of our failing and falling. I found this to be true. I was talking to to a preacher the other day about a ministry and and something that we do here at the church people are involved in. And he asked me an interesting question. He said, when you you, uh, approach people about being involved in this ministry, do you give them an out? Like, if it's ever too much for you, just let me know. And, 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 you know, I'll, I'll let you off the hook. And I laughed. I said, no. Why would I make it easy for him to quit on God? Amen? I told him this, though. I said, in my experience, people don't need an exit strategy if they make their mind up. Hey, listen, I, I've seen, I've seen people endure and experience. I'm talking about mountains of things at church. And then get mad lead because somebody sat in their seat. What happened? They just started looking for an exit strategy. People don't need an excuse to quit. They'll quit without an excuse. I know you've heard the old story about Wendy Bagwell winding up in that snake handling church. You've heard that. I ain't going to tell the story. But he asked, he leaned over to the fellow next to him. He said, you reckon they got a back door in this place? He said, I ain't seen one. He said, where you reckon they want one? (laughs) When a person makes their mind up to quit on God, they don't need an excuse. They're just going to do it. And oftentimes, we short-circuit our walk with God by focusing our mind on the prospect of our failure. You don't have to tell yourself there's a prospect of failure. You already know there's a prospect of failure. You'll be far better off by keeping your eyes on the truth of God's Word and on the prospect of success than you would by constantly having in your mind the prospect of failure. He says, when we go to that land, we ain't coming back. We're going to possess it. We're not visiting it. We're not vacationing there. When we go, we're going to take it and to never come back. When you make a commitment to the Lord, it ought to be with the mindset, I'm taking this step and I'm not turning back. I'm all in 100% for the Lord. And then I want you to notice that he responded with, uh, I had to write this word down. I'm not as smart as I try to let on. Unintrepid. Intrepid. I thought that was a dodge. Amen? But evidently it has another meaning. It means brazen. It means courageous and bold. He responded with an intrepid confidence. He said we're well able. Not just we're barely able. Not maybe we're able. He said we're well able to do this thing. What was that based upon? Not upon his own strength, but upon the promise of God. You see, in God's Word and in His promise, we have everything that we need if we'll only believe and obey it. Peter said, by the promises of God, we're made partakers of the divine nature. How is that? God makes a promise. says, here's what I expect out of you. If you'll do it, if you'll obey, I will respond in such and such a way. And we say, okay, if that's what you say, God, then I will obey you. And in doing so, the mind and will and righteousness of God is lived out in our lives through our obedience. Literally, a little bit of God takes up residence on earth when we obey His promises. I'm not talking about all that word of faith garbage. I'm talking about practical, effectual obedience to God's Word manifests, expresses, and experiences the mind and will of God in this world. You say, chapter and verse, Christ said, as long as I'm in the world, I'm the light of the world. Later on, He said, you are the light of the world. He said, I go away, (laughs) but you're going to stay here. When, when, When He prayed, He said, He prayed to His Father and asked Him, to do greater things through His followers than He had even done through Him. 
I'm saying this, that, that we're not just barely, we're well able if we'll make up our minds. If we'll determine, I'm going to live for God, I'm going to grow in the Lord, I'm going to stay committed to God, we're well able. Well able. That's not pride. That's not arrogance. That's just taking God at His Word. I'm not going to read it. But in chapter 14, I want you to think about the apprehension of faith. Most of us know how this story ends, that God tells the children of Israel, because you've disobeyed me, because you would not go into the land, you're going to wander in the wilderness. It says, for every day that y'all wandered in the land, that's a year you're going to wander in the wilderness. Can I say this, that the ramifications always far outweigh the revelation. I'm going to say that again, I want you to get it. The ramifications always outweigh the revelation. God makes truth known to us and then there's a responsibility. You can't just get light without being expected to walk in it. Oh no. God makes something known to you, you are expected to obey. Expected. And if you won't, hey, you may have just been in the land 40 days, but you'll wander 40 years. With with great revelation comes great responsibility. Never forget it. They say, we won't follow. God says, you'll wander for 40 years. And for 40 years, they proceeded on a death march. They were literally wandering around waiting for everybody to die that had been a part of that first generation. Two men were the exceptions to that. Not even Moses escaped that, by the way. But two men were the exceptions, Joshua and Caleb. And God says to Moses, before they ever even leave Kadesh Barnea, He says, everybody's going to die in the wilderness where they wanted to be, except for two men. Joshua and Caleb. He says, Caleb, because he wholly followed me, he's going to see that land. He obtained three things. One, he obtained the Lord's approval. Listen, it's a great day in life when you recognize that all that really matters. I'm talking about when you push everything else away. Push everything else, all that really matters is that the Lord be pleased with our life. You say, preacher, what if I don't accomplish what I want to accomplish? What if I don't see happen what I want to see happen? If the Lord's pleased, that's enough. He obtained the Lord's approval. Number two, he obtained life. He got to live life to the fullest. He got to see the land. Why? Because he committed that God was able to bring him into the land. He outlived everybody else, him and Joshua. Let me tell you something. If you make your mind up that you want to live for God, you can live life to the fullest. I'm not talking about life to the fullest like the beer commercials show you. I'm not talking about life to the fullest like Hollywood shows you. I'm talking about real life. What the Bible calls life and life more abundant. There's a lot of folks walking around with a hollow, dead look in their eye that aren't living life to the fullest. And then I'd like for you to notice that he obtained the land. God gives him the place that he wanted to be in. Can I close with this thought? It is possible to live for the Lord. It is. But the world, preacher, I know how the world is, but it is possible to live for the Lord. Preacher, but my problems, listen, I don't know what your problems are, but I'm sure you got plenty of them. But it's still possible to live for the Lord. But preacher, the people that, the way they've done me, the way that this has happened, I know, but it's still possible to live for the Lord. And the determining factor is going to be how you respond to what God's Word says. Will you receive it and believe it? Say, all right, Lord, if that's what you want in my life, then that's what I'm going to pursue. No area of my life will be put off limits. No golden calves. No idols left standing. I'll tear them all down. I'll lay myself at your feet. I'll say, Lord, whatever you want for me, that's what I want. Or are you going to do like the other ten spies and say, just not able? 
You can lie to yourself and tell yourself that if you want, and you'll die in the wilderness. Or you can make your mind up that in spite of what everybody else does, you're going to live in the land. 